Greetings and Dobri Den. I'm Nathan with A History of Current Events, a podcast where I summarize the important history and key players behind today's headlines. Today I'll be discussing Ukraine, and given the amount of history I want to cover here, I've decided to split this topic into two episodes. So here we go, Ukraine, Part 1. The issue, as I'm sure many of you have seen in the news, is that Vladimir Putin's Russia has massed over 100,000 troops near the Ukrainian border, which looks an awful lot like an invasion force. Ukraine has been shifting away from its former Soviet overlord Russia and has been seeking membership in Western alliances and institutions, much to the ire of the Russians. Putin is demanding that NATO promise never to allow Ukraine to become a member that NATO withdraw all forces from the Central and Eastern European countries admitted after 1997, that intermediate-range missiles be withdrawn from Eastern Europe, and that autonomy be guaranteed to the separatist Eastern Ukrainian states Donetsk and Luhansk. Russia says they don't plan to invade Ukraine, but their massive military mobilization and their recent cyber attack on the Ukrainian government sends a very different message. Although President Biden has stated that a Russian invasion of Ukraine would not be met with American boots on the ground, many are concerned that war is about to be unleashed on Ukraine. And regardless of the outcome, this crisis will test the resolve of NATO and Europe as a whole. To understand this conflict, we're going to have to delve a ways backward in time. Kiev, the capital of Ukraine located on the Dnieper River, was the center of a federation of medieval principalities, known as the Kievan Rus, which encompassed large portions of modern-day Ukraine, Belarus, and western Russia, with all three claiming it as the political foundation of their nations. It was at this point in history, around the year 1000, that many in Eastern Europe converted from paganism to Eastern Orthodox Christianity, and this became one of the pillars of later Slavic culture. The Kievan Rus was the first major Slavic state, and Kiev was one of the most populous and prosperous early medieval metropoles. By the time the Mongols invaded Eastern Europe in the 1200s, however, The principalities had fallen into constant infighting, and the once largest state in Europe was no more. Despite being conquered by the Mongols, the lands of the former Kievan Rus existed largely on the periphery of their interests, with the Mongol Empire disintegrating into smaller chunks almost as soon as it appeared. The successor state in Crimea, the Black Sea Peninsula in the south of Ukraine, was the Golden Horde and later the Tatar-Crimean Khanate, both of whom would launch occasional raids against their Ukrainian and Polish neighbors to the north. The Ukrainians that did not live under the Crimean Khanate lived under the genial rule of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, which had expanded in the 12 and 1300s to encompass a huge swath of what is now Ukraine. The Lithuanian nobility, generally respected the Ukrainian language and culture, and many even converted to Orthodox Christianity. For about 200 years, things stayed much the same in Ukraine, 
which enjoyed a favorable position within the duchy. But Lithuania was growing closer and closer to Catholic Poland. In 1569, the Lublin Union was signed, merging Lithuania and Poland into the new massive Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. The result was rather unfortunate for Ukraine, as their leadership was replaced by Polish nobility, who stripped property away from the peasants and turned them into serfs, legally bound to the land on which they worked and the lord who owned it. It wasn't exactly slavery, but a serf was far from free. Given the ensurfment and the attempt by the Poles to Polonize the population and convert them to Catholicism, many Ukrainians migrated to central and southern Ukraine, where a peculiar quasi-state was forming within the Commonwealth around the Dnieper River. In response to the Tatar raids, one of which had destroyed Kiev in 1482, the people of the region had adopted a martial culture to preserve the security of their lands. These warriors, known as the Cossacks of the Zaporizhian host, became one of the most formidable military groups in Central and Eastern Europe, raiding not just the Tatars, but the mighty Ottoman Empire, and they were hired as mercenaries by many of the great regional powers. The Cossacks were unconventional for the time because their leadership consisted of a general assembly, the Rada, that would democratically elect their chief, known as a hetman, rather than resembling the dynastic monarchies of their neighbors. They were one of the only democratic governments in the world at the time, and they were fiercely independent. The Poles could not put a stop to the Tatar raids, but the Cossacks proved quite effective at countering their strikes, so at first the Poles tolerated their existence as a useful buffer. But as the power of the Cossacks grew, they came to be seen as a threat. As you can imagine of these freedom-loving warriors, Polish attempts to assert direct control over the Cossacks were not well met, and the Cossacks rose in a number of revolts against them, resulting in a constant low-level war in Ukraine along the southern Polish frontier. In 1648, one of these revolts grew into a full-blown insurrection when Cossack hetman Bodan Kmelnitsky allied with the Tatars to finally throw off the Polish yoke. After a series of victories that led to a popular uprising of Ukrainians against their Polish landlords, Kmelnitsky entered Kiev in 1649 and declared an independent Cossack hetmanate. The Poles weren't about to let the issue go, so they continued to fight the Cossacks, and the Tatars began to withdraw their support. Kmelnitsky needed an ally, preferably a fellow Orthodox power that would support the Cossack way of life. And this is where Russia enters the picture. The Grand Duchy of Moscow, one of the former principalities of the Kievan Rus, had tossed off the rule of the Golden Horde centuries before and its leaders had been doing a lot of expanding and consolidating of power over the last couple centuries. In 1547, Ivan the Terrible had proclaimed the formation of the Tsardom of Russia, and, seemingly lucky for the newly independent Cossacks, they grew into an orthodox superpower with a long-standing rivalry with the Poles and Lithuanians. 
it seemed like a match made in heaven. What happened next would not only alter the course of Ukrainian history, but would also set the stage for the conflict we see today, almost 400 years later. Khmelnytsky met with the Russian officials just south of Kiev in 1654, and together they drafted the Treaty of Pereyaslav, a document which cemented the alliance between the Ukrainians and the Russians. However, there seems to have been a misunderstanding between Khmelnytsky and the Russians as to what this treaty meant. To the Cossacks, Pereyaslav was a temporary alliance with the Russians, wherein the Russians would protect them against the Poles in return for certain oaths of allegiance. To the Tsar, however, Pereyaslav meant that the Cossack Hetmanate was now a vassal of Russia, subject to his rule. No copy of the document has survived to this day, but it may be that the wording was left intentionally vague so that the Russians could take advantage of their Cossack vassals while not alerting them to the Russian expansionist intentions. While this union successfully warded off the Poles for the time being, it is said that Khmelnytsky died three years later regretting his deal with the devil. What followed is known in Ukraine as the Ruin, as civil war broke out between the Cossack leaders. Russia and Poland supported different chiefs as it suited them, and the two powers entered into war against each other, with Russia invading Poland. After much death and destruction, and an intervention by the Ottoman Empire in Ukraine, the Treaty of Perpetual Peace was signed between the Russians and the Poles. Ukraine was partitioned between the two, with the Poles taking the western or right bank of the Dnieper River and the Russians asserting authority over the eastern or left bank. Poland immediately moved to eliminate the Cossacks as a military force on the right bank while the Russians sought to use them as a border guard and a crack unit in the wars that followed, particularly against the Ottomans and Tatars allowing the Cossacks a certain level of autonomy. However, after the Russians defeated the Ottomans in 1774 and the Crimean Khanate was incorporated into the Russian Empire, the Cossacks had no further use to Tsarina Catherine the Great. Russian forces destroyed the Cossack military capital, the Zaporizhian Sich, and reorganized their lands into Novorossiya, New Russia, and Malorossiya, Little Russia. Catherine encouraged migration into the newly conquered Crimea in order to dilute the population of Tatars, so the peninsula and southern areas of Ukraine came to be filled with ethnic Ukrainians and Russians. Meanwhile, Russia was determined to alter the balance of power in Central and Eastern Europe. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was weakening from the inside, and Russia, Austria, and Prussia were more than happy to accelerate its demise. In 1772, the three powers invaded and occupied portions of the Commonwealth, crippling the state. When the Poles moved to enfranchise the bourgeois class in 1791, 
The Russians saw this as too similar to the revolution taking place in France, and they invaded Poland again, taking even more land, with Prussia taking another chunk as the price of mediating the peace. The coup de grace came in 1795 when the Poles rose in revolt and the Russians, Prussians, and Austrians solved this by wiping Poland off the map, divvying up their lands between the three. Russia, of course, got the bulk of the Ukrainian right bank while Austria received parts of western Ukraine, the largest province of which was Galicia. So what did Russia do with its Ukrainian provinces? Well, let's just say things got worse for the Ukrainians. The peasantry that had enjoyed more hard-fought freedoms than in much of the rest of Europe were gradually enserfed, while the nobility grew closer to Russia through intermarriage or outright replacement. The Orthodox Church was used as a means of russification of the Ukrainian population, with the Uniate Catholic Church, prominent in western Ukraine, being abolished and absorbed into the Russian Orthodox faith. Jews, who made up a large minority population in Ukraine, saw more and more restrictions placed upon them as Russia went through a series of anti-Semitic pogroms. The peasant serfs were finally liberated in 1861 with the Great Emancipation, but they got the short end of the stick when it came to land allotment. Many were now even poorer as their traditional lands were stripped from them as the price for their freedom. This led to a migration to the major cities of Ukraine where the Industrial Revolution was in full swing. However, the profitable metallurgical sectors were dominated by ethnic Russians, so there remained a significant income divide between the poor rural Ukrainians and the wealthier urban Russian elite. Something was happening in the cities, though, which the Russians did not intend. Universities were established in cities like Kiev, Odessa, and Kharkiv, and though they were run by Russian officials, they encouraged the teaching of Ukrainian language and history. This led to a blossoming Ukrainian nationalist movement, as literature in the Ukrainian language experienced a major revival and Ukraine's Cossack history was greatly romanticized. The Ukrainians began to see themselves as a distinct group rather than a subject people of the Russian Empire, and some even formed groups looking to establish a free, democratic Ukraine. In Russian eyes, this would not do. The Russian elite saw Ukraine as a subdivision of the larger Russian ethnic group, torn from the Kievan Rus, their common ancestral state, by the Mongol-Tatar invasion. What they required was a bit of reintegration. Russian authorities banned all publications in the Ukrainian language and suppressed its use in schools. Opposition groups in support of Ukrainian independence were punished. The tantalizing idea of independence had been planted, though, and these groups simply moved underground. It is worth noting that in Galicia and the rest of Austrian Ukraine, the Ukrainian population enjoyed substantially greater rights, freedoms, and a stronger national movement, and many of the writers that had been repressed in Russian Ukraine moved there to have their works published. However, 
Later reforms lumped the Galician Ukrainians in with Austrian Poles, and the Polish elite dominated Galicia in the second half of the 19th century. Those who listened to my episode on Taiwan will remember how the Japanese unexpectedly steamrolled China in a war around the turn of the 20th century, causing major social upheaval there. Well, the Japanese did the same thing to Russia, and this devastating loss caused a revolution in 1905 that saw the establishment of the Duma, the Russian parliament, and the demotion of the Tsar to a constitutional monarch. While this seemed like a glimmer of hope for the Ukrainians to find representation in the government, laws were soon passed restricting minority and peasant representation. World War I shook the very foundations of Europe and saw the collapse of many of its empires, including Austria and Russia. The hardships of war exacerbated the frustrations of the Russian people with the monarchy, and it proved to be the straw that broke the Tsar's back. The Russian proletariat rose up against the monarchy in a revolution in February of 1917, replacing him with an interim representative government. The Ukrainians took advantage of the chaos to assert their autonomy, establishing the Ukrainian National Republic, or UNR a socialist government with a democratically elected Rada, and the interim government in St. Petersburg recognized their quasi-independent status. However, with general discontent about continued Russian participation in the war and widely perceived failure of the Republican regime, the Bolsheviks, led by Vladimir Lenin, wrested power from the provisional government in the October Revolution. Not liking where this was going, the UNR declared complete independence from Russia and ousted the regional Russian officials. Lenin wasn't about to let the Ukrainians opt out of his new communist state, though, and in December, Russia launched an invasion to reclaim Ukraine. The Ukrainians weren't going to submit to the Russians without a fight, however, and they gave the Bolsheviks a run for their money. The initial Russian invasion met with staunch resistance and was unsuccessful. Instead, the Bolsheviks helped to set up a communist rival to the UNR, the Ukrainian Soviet Republic, or USR, in the eastern city of Kharkiv, and set about arming and training the Russophone eastern Ukrainians to fight their western counterparts. A number of smaller forces threw their lot into this civil war, including an anarchist army that paradoxically allied with the communists. It was looking pretty bad for the UNR, especially after Bolshevik forces took Kiev in early 1918. Desperate, the nationalists appealed to the Central Powers for aid, which was eagerly granted. A massive Austrian and German offensive pushed the communists out of Ukraine, retaking Kiev for the UNR. The Russians signed the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk two days later, ending their war with the Central Powers and ceding a large chunk of Eastern Europe to them, including Ukraine. The Germans proved to be unfaithful allies to the Ukrainians, for rather than allowing the UNR to continue under their protection, they backed a coup against the Ukrainian Rada 
and established a right-wing hetmanate puppet government. To be fair, this lasted all of two seconds, because, as I'm sure you know, Germany lost the war, and their puppet hetman left along with them. Austrian Ukraine was absorbed into the new Polish Republic, while the Russian Red Army invaded from the east, overrunning much of Ukraine and taking Kiev, re-establishing the USR in March of 1919. Although World War I was over, the fighting continued across the former Russian Empire for another two years between communist and anti-communist forces, with some of the heaviest fighting taking place in Ukraine. But in the end, the Bolsheviks emerged victorious, and in 1922, they proclaimed a Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, of which the USR was a founding member, becoming the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. And that's where I'm going to leave off for today. In the next episode, I will cover the last century of Ukrainian history, from the foundation of the Soviet Union to the ongoing war in Donbass. I've had a great time studying Ukrainian history, and I hope you've enjoyed my summary. I didn't get around to covering the Kievan Rus in the early Middle Ages, as unfortunately I had to draw the starting line somewhere, but if you find that time period as fascinating as I do, I encourage you to check it out, as there are some crazy stories, especially about Queen Olga's overzealous revenge. If you have any questions about Ukraine up to this point, let me know in the comments or shoot me an email at historyofcurrentevents at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for Ukraine, part two.